Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1. Last week, we, we did a brief intro, and Steve's fussing at me. He's pointing at, at, at little kids. Uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and dismiss our uh, children at this point uh, to Children's Church uh, as the herd leaves. Uh, Last week, we looked at uh, the background to the book of Matthew. Uh, and as we do, we'll, we'll do this every week when we're talking about the book of Matthew, just to jog your memories, because I know uh, some of you, uh, I know that some of you are much like myself, and you can't remember what you had for breakfast this morning, <laughs> let alone what we talked about last week. And so, uh, the book of Matthew uh, was written by whom? Matthew. I'll give you a hint. Its name is in the, the author's name is in the title. So, so let, let, let's try that one more time. The book of Matthew was written by Matthew. And the audience for the book of Matthew is the Jews. All right, let's try that one more time. The audience for the map for the book of Matthew is the Jews. All right, now here's a tough one. The theme for the book of Matthew, the theme for the book of Matthew is Jesus. That works, right? The theme for the book of Matthew is Jesus, the son of David. Jesus, the son of David. So the author of the book of Matthew is? The audience for the book of Matthew is? The Jews. The theme for the book of Matthew is? Jesus, son of David. All right, we're going to, we're going to review that every week because that is going to be the, the thrust of the book of Matthew. If you don't understand if you don't understand the, the author and the audience and the, the, the theme of the book, then you get lost in the minutia of the text and you forget the overarching theme because every, every little detail in the book of Matthew is going to have to fit and is going to have to, to, to be connected to the theme. So if you pull something out of the book of Matthew that is not about Jesus as the son of David, Jesus as the promised Messiah, Jesus as the one whom God has called to the Jewish people to fulfill the promise of the, of, of the Old Testament prophets, then, then you're misinterpreting the text. And so, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife. And he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. 
Let's pray. God, as we read your word here this morning, Lord, may you open up our hearts to see Jesus, not just as a good man, not just as a great teacher, a healer of the sick. Lord, but may we see him as the promised son of David, the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, may we see Jesus as your word portrays him. May you touch us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray, amen. Well, as we begin this passage, the author reminds us, look at verse 18, this is where we're going to camp out for just a few moments. The author reminds us, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Now let's stop right there. Many of us hear the term Jesus Christ, and we automatically assume that Jesus was his first name and Christ was his last name, right? I mean, if Jesus was in the phone book, he'd be right under the C's, Jesus Christ, because that's his name. But no. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. The author reminds us of his pedigree. Christ was not his last name, but Christ was his title. The Old Testament uses the word, I'm sorry, the, the New Testament uh, uses the word Christos, uh, which literally is a, is a transliteration, which means the Messiah, the anointed one, the one whom God has anointed to be the fulfillment of the promise, the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah. And so when the author introduces Jesus in verse 18, he says, Jesus, the promised one, Jesus, the anointed one. This is how the birth of Jesus, the promised one, came about. It is as if we were saying President Obama. His first name is not President, it is Barack. But we understand he is given a title, President. And it is that title which garners him respect, which garners him honor, which garners him the, the, the office in and of itself carries with it respect and honor, regardless of what Regardless of what his character tells us, it is his title that gives him honor and glory, just like the kings of the Old Testament. Regardless of how wicked Nebuchadnezzar was, he was still king. And he carried with himself authority and honor and respect because of his office. Now, Jesus, the author tells us, now this is the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one. And so we get this, this story of Jesus' birth. Now, isn't it interesting that Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, and we'll get into this in a couple weeks, is a little bit different than the account that Linus tells us in A Charlie Brown Christmas, right? We hear the birth story, and there were in those days shepherds abiding in their fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, an angel of the Lord appeared before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. But Matthew's account doesn't talk about the shepherds. It doesn't talk about the, the, it doesn't talk about the proclamation of the angels. It doesn't talk about uh, the, uh, the, the shepherds coming in worship. It, it doesn't give us that story. Why? We're going to look at that a little bit as we get into uh, the birth story about Jesus. And it's all tied to the theme. Jesus in Matthew is the son of David, the son of promise, the anointed one. All right, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Now, this is the birth of Jesus the Messiah. Verse 20. <clears throat> 
But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, the son of David. So the author has reminded us of Jesus' pedigree, that he is Jesus, the promised one of God, and then he reminds us of Joseph's pedigree. The author tells us who Joseph was, and notice it doesn't say Joseph, son of Jacob. Why would it say Joseph, son of Jacob? Go back to verse 17. I'm sorry, not verse 17, verse 16. We get this whole lineage, this whole line of of people, all the way from Abraham down to Joseph. And verse 16 says, And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ, the Messiah. So if you're going to, to address Joseph by his father, because that's how they would do it in those days, Joseph, son of your dad, which in this case would be Jacob. Joseph was not called son of Jacob in verse 20, was he? No. He was called Joseph, the son of David. Why? Why would the author, why would the angel address Joseph as Joseph, son of David, rather than Joseph, son of Jacob? I mean, his dad wasn't David, was he? No, but it, it, it carried with it the reality of the lineage of Joseph in light of the promise, the covenant promise of the covenant of the Davidic covenant. All right, we're going to talk for just a few moments about covenant because it means something to the Israelite people. It means something to the Jewish people. And if we're going to understand what Matthew is trying to portray, if we're going to understand the theme of Matthew, if we're going to understand Jesus as the promised son of David, we have to understand the nature of the covenant to the, to the Israelite people. Now, for the Israelite people, there were two types of covenant. There was a bilateral covenant and a unilateral covenant. Many of us think all covenants are the same. They're all bilateral covenants because that's the kind of covenant that we are most familiar with. This is the kind of covenant that that we see the Mosaic covenant. This is the covenant. If you do this, then I'll do this. God says, he tells the people of Israel, he says, if you will keep my law, if you will obey my law, then I will bless you. If you disobey my law, then curses will befall you. I will be your God. I'll be your people. Your enemies will be my enemies. I will hate those who hate you, and I will, I will curse those who curse you. Uh, I will go to bat on your behalf if you'll keep my commandments. However, if you disobey my commandments, then curses will fall you. Your enemies will, will have uh, your enemies will have success over you, and, and you, will, you will experience the judgment of God. That's a bilateral covenant. It goes both ways. If you do good, good things happen. If you do bad, bad things happen. And this is how most of us view all of our life. We think that, that, that life is this giant rubber band, and that, that if good things, that, that, that if, if we pull it back, that, that, that eventually, if bad things happen, if we do bad things, then eventually bad things are going to happen to us. If we do good things, good things are going to happen to us. This is the law of cause and effect. This is, this is how we view Christianity. The problem is, is that the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant are not bilateral covenants. And the Abrahamic covenant precedes the Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is a unilateral covenant. That means it doesn't go both ways. That means that it is sealed by God and His character. Go with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. This is the first hint that we see God making a covenant with His people. Genesis chapter 12. 
I take that back. We see God making covenants with Adam. God made covenants with uh, God made covenant with Noah when he said, I will not uh, destroy the earth. Uh, but but this is the covenant with the Israelite people. Verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country. Go from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And those who curse, those the ones whom you curse, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. What was Abram's responsibility in this covenant? None. Nothing. God said, I'm going to do this. If you will go to church every Sunday. If you will pay me a tithe. If you will do X, Y, or Z. No. God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. In you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Just a few chapters later, just a few chapters later, Abram, like every red-blooded American, says, give me some proof. Prove this to me. Put your money where your mouth is. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. Abram says, how can I know that you're going to do what you said you're going to do? He said, prove it to me, God. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said to me, And Abram said, O Lord God, what will thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since thou hast no offspring to me, since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but the one who shall come forth from your own body, and he will be your heir. And he looked outside, and he said, Look toward the heavens. Count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and it reckoned to him righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord, how may I know that I shall possess it? And then the Lord's going to seal his covenant. This is verse 9. Uh, verse 9 through the end of the chapter is God sealing his covenant as was the custom in the Old Testament, that God would seal the, or that, that men would seal the covenant with blood. And so this is God saying, I'm going to seal this covenant. I'm going to demonstrate to you that the covenant which I am making to you will come to pass. Look at verse 9. He said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, turtle dove, young pigeon. He brought all these to him. He said, cut them in two and lay each half opposite each other. But do not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the, carcass, the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, this is God articulating the covenant, Know for certain your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, Egypt, where they, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will judge the nations whom they will serve. And afterwards, they will come out with many possessions, the exodus. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. And the fourth generation, they shall return. Joshua returns to the promised land. They shall return for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that there was darkness. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch was passed between these pieces. On that day... The Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the great river of Egypt, 
as far as the great river of the Euphrates, from the Kenite to the Kenizzite to the Kadamonite to the Hittite, the Perizzite, and Rephraim, to Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. We see God sealing the covenant. As was the custom in the Old Testament, they would separate, they would separate the, the two pieces of the sacrifice. And the two parties that were involved in the covenant would pass between the two pieces of the uh, offering signifying and symbolizing that this covenant is sealed by blood. In this case, who was it that passed between the two pieces of the offering? God. Where was Abram? He was cruising. He was in la-la land. He was asleep. The covenant that God made with Abram is not a bilateral covenant. By nature, it is a unilateral covenant. That's why. All throughout Israel's history, even though Israel played the harlot and served other gods and, and gave themselves to, to false gods and to idol worship, and, and even though Israel was, was not honoring of the Mosaic Covenant, did not keep the law, God was bound by His own character, by His own righteousness, to keep that which He promised. Because it wasn't a bilateral covenant. It was a unilateral covenant. David is a partial fulfillment of this Abrahamic covenant. Joseph was the son of David. And the author in the book of Matthew is reminding the hearers that God promised in a unilateral covenant that he would send a Messiah. And it would be through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Jesus. It would be through that monarchical line, through that kingly line, that the Messiah would come. And he's coming not because you deserve it, but he's coming because I promised it. And I will not be made a liar. I will keep my covenant. The nature of covenant for the Israelite people was ingrained in their psyche. They knew covenant. They lived covenant. For us, covenant means nothing. For us, covenant is a contract. What's sad is marriage is a covenant, not a contract. You're going to have to bear with me for just a little bit because I'm about to get on the soapbox. The nature of marriage is a, is, is a covenant. It is not a contract. The moment that we enter into a covenantal relationship with our husband or our wives, we are, we are committing to them, bound by our own character, regardless of what he or she may do. And we are binding ourselves to them by covenant, not by contract. When you sign a purchase agreement on a house, you sign a contract. When you sign a lease agreement, you sign a contract. That way, when you go to the closing and you find out that there's termites, you're out. Whenever you show up at the lease agreement and you realize that they didn't perform their, that, that they didn't fulfill their end of the agreement, then you don't have to execute the sale. Marriage is not a contract. Whenever you enter into a covenant and you find out five years later that, 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 that she's been, that she's got thousands and thousands of dollars worth of debt that you didn't know about and 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 now you want out of this contract that's not the nature of marriage 
The nature of marriage is a covenant saying, I am committed to this individual based upon my character, regardless of what they will do. And when they turn out, turn out to be somebody that I had no idea who I was marrying, we are bound to that individual because marriage is a covenant, not a contract. And all God's people said, amen. We don't get to get out because we don't like the terms of the contract. Because somebody violated their end of the agreement. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. All right, I'm off my soapbox. We understand, go back to the book of Matthew. The author reminds us, the author reminds us, when the author calls Joseph the son of David, when the author calls Joseph the son of David, the hearer would have immediately gone back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. The fulfillment of God's promise. It would have immediately brought them back to a covenantal relationship. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18, we see the Davidic covenant. Again, a unilateral covenant. One that is not bound by anyone other than God and his character. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 8, now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from pasture, from following sheep, that you should be the ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may live in their own place, and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And when your days are complete, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you. And I will establish his kingdom. Listen to verse 13. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? forever i will be a father to him he'll be a son to me when he commits iniquity i will correct him with the rod of men the strokes of the son of men but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as i took it away from saul whom i removed from before you 14 and 15 are referencing solomon verse 16 and in your house your kingdom shall endure before me forever for your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words all the vision of nathan spoke to david the Davidic covenant. So when the angel refers to David, I'm sorry, Joseph as the son of David, it was a reference to that Davidic promise, that unilateral promise that all of the hearers of the book of Matthew would have understood immediately. Later on in that same verse, verse 20, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is of God. This, this language, this language in verse 20, for the child who has been uh, conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That The, the, the word pneumatos in, in the Greek is in a genitive case, and everybody says, oh, well, that makes sense. The word spirit in Matthew chapter 20 is in a genitive case. That tells us that that word carries with it possession. It is possessive. Like we would take 
uh, we would take somebody's name and we would put apostrophe S, giving it the, the, the understanding that they are possessing whatever it is. The genitive case in the Greek gives possession to the noun or the antecedent that it refers to. And so when the language tells us that Jesus is of that which is conceived, Jesus is of the Holy Spirit, that child is the Holy Spirit that's telling us that it is God's Son that is conceived in Mary. That Jesus didn't become God later on, that it wasn't that at his baptism that the Spirit of God fell upon him, but from the very moment of conception, the Spirit of God was in Mary. That, that Jesus was God from the very beginning. That language right there gives us the realization that, that the Spirit of God fertilized and conceived the egg in Mary to allow it to grow in the womb. And that Jesus, when he came forth from the womb, that he was perfect, without blemish, without sin. That Jesus is the only man born of woman that entered this world free from the nature of sin. Why? Because he was conceived not of man, but of God. We looked at last week that, that the seed of man carries the nature of sin. Romans chapter 5, 18 says, through one man's sin, uh, the, uh, go, go there, Romans chapter 5, verse 18. <clears throat> So then, as through one transgression, one act of, of rebellion, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Through the one act of disobedience of Adam, the nature of sin was imputed to all of the descendants of Adam. Through one act of sin, one act of transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Conversely, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification and life to all men. How is that possible? Because the one act of righteousness, the one act of, of godliness, the one act of, of, of righteousness that resulted in justification was made by one from whom there was no sin. Jesus, by the very nature of his conception and his birth, was free from the nature of sin. Psalm 51 tells us that David acknowledged this, this problem of sinful nature. He said in Psalm chapter 51, verse 6, he said, he said, For behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Saying that, that regardless of what I desired to do, that there was a sin problem. It was a, it was a nature problem that, that I was conceived in sin. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that Jesus is not like that. That Jesus, that we have a high priest who... It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but Christ who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The only way Christ can, can be without sin is that he is free from, from the nature of sin. How do I know this? Because I understand that, that as we are tempted with sin, that we're going to give in to that temptation. Why? Because we're weak? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we are, we are by nature, we are by nature slanted toward evil. If I bring Mike the tiger, Mike's the, the, the sixth now, right? If I bring Mike the tiger in here and, and I set a, 
a big juicy ribeye on a plate. And I make a nice green leafy salad and put spinach and celery and cucumbers and tomatoes and all the, the good stuff. Well, where's Mike going? If he makes it down the aisle without going after one of you. <laughs> He's going to that ribeye. Why? Because it's his nature. He's a carnivore. He needs meat. He needs blood. Now, if I bring a bunny rabbit in here and I have the same options, where's that rabbit going? He's going to eat the lettuce. Why? Because by nature, he's an herbivore. He eats plants. By nature, we are brought forth into this world sinners. And given the choice, we're going to choose sin. Now, we may appear to choose righteousness, but even in our appearance to choose righteousness, we're doing so for selfish motivation so that others will see us as righteous, which in and of itself is sin. Isaiah said our righteousness are as filthy rags. And so even, even societal pressure that, that, that makes us do that which is right is sinful because it is done so out of impure and wrong motives. By nature, we're sinners. Jesus has a different nature. Why? Because he is conceived of the Holy Spirit different than us that's why jesus is the only one who is able to resist sin so that he can say that he is without sin matthew will not focus on jesus's humanity why because israel didn't want a king who was human israel wanted a king who was god the, concept, the, the, the conception free from the nature of sin is that which allows Jesus to fulfill the very righteousness of God. Church, I want us to understand this. God does not relax or compromise his standards because they're too hard for us to keep. A lot of times when we, when we think about the goodness and the grace and the love of God, we misunderstand the love of God. God loves us so much that he will not compromise his standards. See, as parents, watching my children grow up, I'm watching them struggle to become young men and young women. I'm watching them fail at the things that I expect them to do and and. So there naturally becomes the question for me as a dad, am I too hard on my kids? And my wife will tell you, yes, you are. Do we, do we expect too much out of them? Is it too much to expect them to, after they get out of the tub to clean up the, the, the mound of clothes that, are, that, that we have to wade through to get to the bathroom? You know, is it too much to expect our children to, to, to make their beds in the morning? Is it too much? And so, and so as, as parents, we always struggle with this, with this question, okay, do I compromise my standards? Do I, do I say, look, it's okay if you don't put up your, your dishes after you eat dinner. It's okay because after all, I love you and I don't want to fuss at you. Or are we being bad parents by, by not teaching them responsibility? Well, church, let me, let's understand the love of God. 
God in his very character is unwilling to relax his standards. Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. I want us to listen to how Moses articulates the character of God. Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. He says this. He said, the Lord is slow to anger and he is abounding in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. So it talks about his goodness and his kindness and his benevolent. But listen to the next phrase. But he will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generations. Because God is unwilling to relax his standards, we must understand that it was necessary for Jesus to be free from the nature of sin so that he could perfectly fulfill the righteous requirement of God. Not only is Jesus free from sin nature, but he is absolutely that which the prom- prophets promised. He is the Messiah. Go back to Matthew chapter 1. We're almost done, I promise. Matthew chapter 1. He says, He is. He is that which is conceived of the Holy Spirit in verse 20. And then in verse 22, He says, Now this took place, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, that it might be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Not only does the author remind us that Jesus is God, that that, that he is God in the flesh, that he is conceived of the Holy Spirit, free from the nature of sin, but the author also tells us he is the complete fulfillment of the prophets. That which Israel was expecting. All throughout Israel's history, there has been those who have claimed to be the fulfillment of the prophecy. There have been those who they thought were the fulfillment of the prophecy. Many many messianic claims, many of those who claimed to come and said, I am the Messiah, those whom the prophets had prophesied about. Yet, one by one, each of them failed to satisfy all that the prophets prophesied of. But then Jesus came, completely fulfilling all that the prophets said he would do. Church, for us, the world has given us many claims, many fulfillments that we are mistakenly told will satisfy, will fulfill. Money. Career family, prestige, and in the same way that every false messianic claim left Israel wanting, left Israel reeling, the claims of this world will leave you just the same, just like Jesus was the only one to fulfill the prophet's prophecy. Jesus is the only one that can satisfy that desire that is within us. Nothing that this world has to offer, only Jesus satisfies. Let's pray.
God, we are so grateful that in Your grace, You completely fulfilled Your righteousness in Jesus. Lord, that in Your great sovereignty and in Your great omnipotence, that Jesus came free from sinful nature. That Jesus came 100% God, able to fulfill that which I could not. Lord, and I thank You that in Christ I am counted righteous. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. If you're out there this morning and you've been looking for the things of this world to satisfy, to give you peace, if I just had a little bit more money, if I just had a little bit more prestige, I just had one more drink. I just had one more whatever. And God reminds you this morning, only Jesus can satisfy. Only Jesus could satisfy the prophets. Only Jesus can satisfy that which your heart longs for. that's you this morning I want to invite you to come maybe you're here this morning and God has laid it upon your heart to be a part of what we're doing what God is doing here at Redeemer that's you I invite you to come or maybe this morning you just want to tell Jesus thank you Thank you for paying a debt that you could not pay. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart this morning, may you find yourself obedient. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.